You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy, a podcast series on everything in the nonprofit and philanthropic world. Our podcasts are focused on major gift fundraising, foundations, nonprofit institutions, and program services. Today we turn our attention to philanthropy from a donor's perspective. Our guest is Lisa Greer, philanthropist and author of the new book called Philanthropy Revolution. Lisa sits on the board of the New Israel Fund, serves on the executive committee of Cedar sinai Board of Governors. She also serves as a commissioner and chair in Beverly Hills in the Cultural Heritage Commission and on the Jewish Community Foundation as a trustee. She's also been a board member with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and with the Girl Scouts of Los Angeles. Earlier in her career, Lisa was a studio executive at NBC and Universal Studios and she founded and led several companies including a management consulting and a strategic advisory firm specializing in digital media and entertainment business. Lisa holds a bachelor's degree from UCLA, Go Bruins, good basketball run, and an MBA with, from Pepperdine University. She lives in Beverly Hills with her family, husband, and five children. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Good, welcome. Um, can you share with us a little bit about your path from a businesswoman in the entertainment field to becoming a philanthropist? Sure. Uh, so when I was at Universal Studios, um, actually, when I started there in the 90s, my husband, my I didn't know he was going to be my husband, but uh, uh, Josh Greer was um, just leaving, actually, to start uh, one of the very, very first digital media companies building websites for studios, basically, for the entertainment industry. Uh, so we met and I, over the next several years, just thought he was just the most uh, intelligent guy I'd ever met and really interesting. And um, and that was fine. And he's younger than me. And we both kind of went on our ways and uh, did a lot of work in digital media. And I would see him at conferences and things. And then fast forward, uh, I was working with about uh, 10 years later, uh, 15 years later or so, I was uh, had been divorced. My uh, uh, Josh uh, had been divorced. We were both doing a variety of different work in digital media and entertainment. And um, we got together and he had put the last of his money from two very successful previous companies because we, we both had done corporate as well as entrepreneurial work. And he had put the last of the money into a, um, uh, a company called Real D. And Real D became, after many grueling years, uh, became the company that most everybody has, has uh, engaged with in that uh, whenever you go to see a 3D movie, uh, a good portion of the time it's going to be uh, because of real D technology that Josh actually uh, and his team invented. So I, at that point, had a business and I was in the fertility business, uh, helping people build families, a uh, company that I had started. Josh had uh, been working on this company, which which was, you know, wasn't taking a salary or anything. It was, we were both kind of just, we're living paycheck to paycheck and had been for most of our lives. Uh, and then things took off and uh, a few years later the company went public and we became overnight wealthy people 
And uh, having not grown up in that, it was a big shock and we wanted to do it right. So we didn't want our kids to turn into jerks and we wanted to do the <laughs> thing. And so we, uh, so we spent a lot of time learning how from, really it wasn't from other people because we didn't know the other people, but, but learning from reading uh, what, what we wanted and what we didn't want and, and learning about philanthropy. So we came at it from being business people um, and in Josh's case as well, uh, an inventor uh, and, and adults who had never really had large amounts of money to give. It, it, we, I didn't even know big donors. It wasn't part of our universe. And then overnight we, 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 we found out we were going to have money and decided that of course we were, we didn't question would we give because I think there was a fair amount of guilt there as well, but we, we, we just knew that we had to give to something and what should we give to. And so we, we got together, um, had a meeting right before the IPO and said, let's pick each pick one area we would like to give a really big gift to. And mine went to my synagogue where I was the incoming uh, president and I'd been involved for several years. And they were completing a, a capital campaign and uh, rebuilding and re renovating their sanctuary. And Josh chose uh, Cedar sinai Hospital where he had been treated for his Crohn's disease since he had been about 20. And we, in, in that case, we endowed a chair. And prior to that, I didn't even know what that meant. So, so two very major uh, uh, donations and major gifts. And then uh, we tried to figure it out from there. So the book is about, my book is about sort of what that was like trying to understand what is this strange world that we all of a sudden showed up in. Well, it's certainly a wonderful success story, and I'm glad you're in a position now to give and give back to uh, organizations. It's a wonderful place to be. In your book, you hit on a variety of uh, key themes, and I'd like to talk about three of them for a moment. The first one being researching your prospects, meaning that fundraisers don't research their prospects enough. Tell us a little bit about that and what your thoughts are. Right. So uh, I, I found out actually when I was at the synagogue, the uh, development director was telling us that she had hired people and she had done research on our database. And I really didn't know how that all worked, having not been that heavily in that side. I, I was on the side of fundraising as a board member and maybe a volunteer, but not as a development executive. And what I found out is that the when I asked her for the information, because uh, we were starting, we're looking for money for some other, I think it was an annual campaign. And uh, uh, we looked at the data, they looked at the, we looked at the database and she told me that the way that it was done in the industry was that you asked three questions of that database, the people in that database. And the three questions were, and, and I believe this is still done today, um, unfortunately, but the three questions are to look and find out uh, uh, how much the person's home is worth number one, number two, what their political party is, and number three, how much they've given to that political party. And uh, I see, I know you're chuckling a little bit. It was, <laughs> I, I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So, so I'm just gonna go through them really quickly because they don't make any sense. So political party doesn't matter. If you're querying your own database, clearly you're already working with people who where the political party doesn't matter and it shouldn't make a difference. So it doesn't make a difference in terms of financially what their capacity is. So that just should be gone. How much they gave to political parties is uh, and to elections is a little bit ridiculous in my opinion because there's a cap on that money. And so you really don't get a good sense of what that person could give and what they might give had there not been a cap uh, that was uh, federally designated. 
And the third is the cost, the value of your home, uh, as most people know, doesn't make, in my opinion, any sense because you have no idea what how much their equity is on their home and it could be mortgaged to the hilt or not. And you really don't know. And so somebody who, who bought a home for, let's say, $30,000 20 years ago and the house is paid off and now it's worth a million dollars, you know, you don't, you don't know that they've been borrowing all along or that they haven't been borrowing all along. And so the value doesn't mean anything. So, so I really wanted to point that out to people and explain to them that there are much better ways to skin that cat. That's a very interesting perspective because actually I've been in the fundraising field a long time. I've never heard about the political angle, uh, though I have dealt with people on both sides of the table. And uh, I, I didn't know there were Jewish Republicans until I started raising money. And then I realized how many there were. <laughs> but And I, I always keep that to myself. Um, the other uh, thing you talk about is uh, for fundraisers to get off the script. Uh, so why don't you talk about that a little bit? What does a script mean and uh, how does that impact you? when you're looking to give money away? Right. Uh, well, first of all, if somebody has a script, I can usually smell it. And I'm already, if, if it feels like I'm being uh, talked to in a way that is sort of the, the kind of rote warning that they would give to a rich person, um, a wealthy person, whatever, uh, then I, I, I know probably in the first sentence that that's what they're doing. And it feels disingenuous and um, and pandering and uh, even offensive to me. So I, I think it, 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 I, I really don't understand. I'm trying to understand better as years go on, but I don't understand why it is so difficult to have a relationship with somebody who's another human being sitting across the table from you or in today's world across Zoom from you because nobody in a relationship would start a conversation with a script. It would be very strange unless you were doing I don't even know why you would do that. Maybe it was a class or something, but you wouldn't do that and expect the person to answer you honestly. It just it just wouldn't happen. And we can tell as donors when a fundraiser is uh, uncomfortable or uh, is is trying to kind of mince words and tell us what they want, what they think we want to hear. Uh, and it feels really awkward. And it doesn't make as much, as great as the organization might be. If the fundraiser is doing that, and I feel like I'm being, uh, you know, treated like somebody, you know, like the, the, you know, hey, that you're the three o'clock one, and I get this speech, and four o'clock gets the same, <laughs> o'clock gets the same then I, I just it, it makes me not want to engage in the organization, despite the fact that I might be really interested in their mission. Well, what's great about that is I in my consulting work um, recently, I was talking to an organization. They said, "Can you send us a sample script that you use?" And I replied, "I don't use a script." Scripts should not be used. So you're really kind of, uh, you know, reinforcing that in, in many ways. Um, the other thing you, you say in your book is never assume anything about your donor. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I'm hoping uh, your listeners all know what assume really means, right? <laughs> um, and if you don't know, you can look it up on Google. It's, uh, but, but I think assuming anything about somebody who you don't know is just wrong, a period. I mean, there's a whole issue of this in diversity, obviously, but assuming you are a woman, therefore you must ask your husband for money and he must have raised the money, that is that is just a crazy assumption. And, and to just say that right off the top, you know, think that off the top of the, uh, the conversation. I think assuming that you know what somebody like that, who has that kind of money, who lives in that kind of house must want to donate this kind of way is, is 
unfair and offensive. And we're different people. Everybody's different. And in in real life, um, IRL, as they say, um, to to if, again, if you were having a relationship where you were just meeting somebody over coffee and you didn't have an agenda, um, the idea that you would assume things about them and and then talk to them based on that assumption is it would it just wouldn't happen. I, I don't think uh, with with most people. So it really shouldn't happen in this case either. You make a reference to to women in philanthropy, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit. I've always worked with strong women in, in my business career and in my nonprofit career, and I have found that my women donors are much more aware of what they're giving money to and much more passionate about giving money. Can you speak to the role of women today in philanthropy and how it's affected you? Right. Well, thank you for asking that question. I think that uh, it is uh, a really interesting time for women in philanthropy uh, because there's there's a lot that's happened in the last year, uh, going all the way from uh, uh, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife to um, to a woman named Agnes Gund, who uh, has a documentary that came out this year called Aggie, which I recommend everybody sees, who's been a donor for many, many, many decades, years, many, several decades. And, and in both cases, these are people who just decided to do it their own way. And what, what, what I found appalling is when, um, when the uh, uh, Bezos gift was given, uh, or the, the number of, I think it was almost what, seven million, wait, seven billion, billion dollars, right? Six <laughs> billion dollars. Um, it was uh, immediately, the press was all after her saying, oh, well, she did it so quickly and in such a large scale that she couldn't possibly have thought it through correctly. And my new sort of mantra is really did, if, if it was a man who did that, would anyone have said that? And the answer is no. So they really went after her saying, well, she must not have done the research. And she did do the research. She went to Bridgespan. She had a whole bunch of people. She just didn't take tons of time to do it. She did know where she wanted to give money. She did have an idea and she went with that. And there was nothing that it, it appears, obviously I wasn't there, but it appears that there is nothing that she did that was um, wasn't fully researched, was inappropriate, was done in a kind of a, 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 a you know, too quick way uh, without being thoughtful. And yet she was immediately accused of that. And, and so I'm really hoping that that will change. Uh, and the Agnes uh, Gund uh, piece actually is wonderful because it talks about somebody who's who really uh, was was more old school, I would say, and yet uh, was very, very much responsible for um, some legislation in the last few years that people don't know about, uh, for some major, major changes in the world of fine art. And she did this on her own. So she has, sure, she has advisors and people I'm sure around her, but really it's about what comes from her heart and what makes her feel good and what she feels is important. And so, and then there's other people like that. Joan Crock was another person who uh, did that kind of thing that was that was different after her husband passed away, the McDonald's heiress, and uh, and and you know quite a few other women. I'd say there's probably half a dozen women now that are that are making really bold decisions about money and are 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 being second guessed a lot. And I'm hoping that that's going to change. You are listening to The Road to Philanthropy. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. My listeners can't see this, but you got an RBG statue behind you, a little doll behind you, which, you know, 
is a, a wonderful statement of what what she did for women uh, in the in the workplace and uh, in in the world in general. Um, you also came up through a career in the entertainment business at a time when women were not necessarily that active in a lot of areas. Uh, and I have a 28 year old daughter right now who's a young producer in Hollywood. And every once in a while she comes up against a wall and she just marches right through it. Uh, but how did, how did that impact your, your, you know, what you learned then as a businesswoman to what you are today uh, in your view of women in philanthropy? Yeah. Um, it, it, well, it's interesting because when it was happening in the entertainment business and yes, I encountered lots and lots of uh, issues. Let's just call them and be nice about it. Um, but, but all, all sorts of commentary, um, everything from, I mean, the most common one is you got that uh, promotion because you slept with your boss. That I mean, that's just something that has been said for, I don't know, decades. Um, but everything from that to, you know, how can you possibly do your job when you have children? Things like that. Um, and I, I hope those aren't being said anymore, but they might be. Uh, but I, I didn't really realize that I, I kind of wanted to believe that it had gone away. And in my consulting um, after that for many years, I, I just thought, oh, no, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here with an executive team. And yes, they're mostly men, but, but it feels okay. And I didn't see a lot of it. What I realized uh, after I was uh, actually in the Jewish world, uh, I did, and, and, and when I was, was running a board of directors, I started to realize that the gender thing is still a really, really big issue. And then I started looking back and realizing that those decades that where I had had very strange and offensive things said to me, I sort of buried them. And I think lots and lots of women do. And I just ignored them and said, well, yes, but yes, but that, you know, really worked out. Yes, but I had this really great job. Yes, but, and I, I started, and it wasn't really until I was, giving as a donor that I felt free to really see it, uh, that I, 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 maybe it's because I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I didn't, didn't have a boss. I didn't have somebody who was, who I was afraid of. So I, I really saw it around and it was disturbing. Uh, the good news is that I, 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 I don't see it in the in the world of philanthropy anywhere near as much as I did in the world of entertainment, um, and I hope for your daughter's sake that she doesn't see it at all. Uh, but it's 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 there, and so my new mantra, and I recommend everybody else does this, is that if somebody says something to you, you're about to have a meeting with a woman, uh, or you are a woman who feels weird about a meeting you just had, and you're let's say you're a donor and you just had a meeting with a a, a female or a male uh, a fundraiser and they're the other end of the table and they say something and you're thinking that's a little strange just say to yourself this is my mantra just say to yourself if i was a man would that conversation have happened that way mm. and if the answer is is yes then okay let it go if the answer is no then you really need to think about it and think about the person on the other side and maybe you know scold them a little bit uh, i think what's interesting is also i think is the role models one of the things my daughter had growing up was a strong role model in her mother, who was a career woman, and other of our friends that all had careers, women that had careers and things. And now she's been working for showrunners that are mostly women. Uh, and so it's a very good model for her. She's about three rungs below showrunner. But as she moves up the ranks, uh, you know, it, it, she has good role models all around her. And that's the important thing, I think, in philanthropy, too. Uh, I know in the Bay Area, in philanthropy, they have a a youth philanthropy program out of the Federation, which actually my daughter took part in. And they're doing that again, I think in Los Angeles now. And it's a very good model for philanthropy is how do you turn 
young people and people growing up in the world into philanthropists themselves. I, I think that's a great idea. And I love the idea that that your daughter has role models there, uh, which which I didn't really. And so I think that's a huge benefit. And I think right. that a lot of the older, more established fundraisers around who are women, um, if they don't already, should see themselves as role models for this younger group. The other thing I'll, I'll, I'll add to that, and, and then we'll move on to another theme, was that, is that in the Bay Area, for whatever reason, and maybe it's the same in Los Angeles, but I wasn't down here for so many years. In the Bay Area, I think, you know, six of the 12 biggest philanthropists in the, in the Jewish world, anyway, were all women. Uh, and, and that was a very, going back 30, 40 years. Uh, there was a woman that was the head of federation back in the 60s, which is very unusual. Um, so that's kind of a, a change that's taking place, I think, in the Bay Area, anyway, it has years ago. Um, another theme in your, in your book is communication, about that fundraisers uh, and organizations don't really know how to communicate well with their donors. Um, give us some of your thoughts on that subject. Your book was really interesting on that in that area. I think that the, the number one thing that's important is to realize, and I kind of said a little bit of this earlier, that the uh, that that you need to think of donors, whatever level they're at, as human beings. That I, I like to think that, that you, know, you would open up. I think it's People Magazine or one of the magazines like that, and it says there's always a section that says celebrities. They're just like you. They you know they put on their <laughs> pants you know one leg at a time, whatever it is, and and I think that we need to understand that donors are, there's as many different kinds of donors as there are different kinds of people in general or whatever classification it is. And to assume that they all want a certain thing or they all act a certain way or they all think a certain way is just unfair. So I, and, and, you know, there are some people who think, well, you don't have to pander to donors and, and that's true. You just have to treat them like you were having a conversation with anybody else and, and with respect and curiosity and honesty and all of those kinds of things. And once you do that, I think the rest of it falls into place. And my proof of this is that the number one reason is I'm sure you know that most donors in, in, in study after study after study, that donors don't give as much as people want or pe some people don't give at all or some people don't give a second time um, is trust. And if that's really the issue, if, if, if we're trying to establish a, a, a world of trust, and a relationship where trust is a big thing, then then we should just start out that way. We should just we should just have that as the base of all of our conversations. Is that is it would I trust if someone was saying that to me, would I trust them? And if you say no, then don't say it to the other person. Right. Very good point. I think also today communication uh, by email or by phone or by handwritten note, uh, people tend to lean towards the email world these days. I know in December. I was inundated, and probably you were too, with thousands of emails from uh, organizations. And I finally called one and I said, I don't need an email each day during this month. <laughs> I'm going to make a gift. I always make a gift in December, but I don't need these emails. Um, You're right. I, I, I talked to a friend who's a big fundraiser uh, yesterday, the day before, and she got four emails in a single day from one organization, like every couple of hours. Will you give now? Will you give now? And like I said earlier, if, 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 even if I really love the organization, if that interaction is that is like that, and it, uh, you know, I'm usually going to say, I'll just go find, let's go find the person who does a similar thing to what they do. And let's give them money because, you know, it's, it's, it's awful when somebody does that. And I keep thinking the only reason they do it is because somebody must give somewhere. But right. when the, when the percentage of people giving a second time after the first time, as you probably know, the new Statistics say it's 18%. Only 18% of people who give a first time to an organization will give the next year to that same organization. 
uh, that's not so great. And in business, it would be appalling and people would be spending millions of dollars trying to figure it out. Uh, and, and that number has been steady or declining for the last at least two decades. So if that's what the case is, then we need to really rethink the way that we're doing this. Now, you said your initial donations, uh, one was a gift to uh, the temple that you were very active at and were becoming president of, and then Cedar sinai was your husband's uh, 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 cause. Um, how do you decide now uh, where to give money, giving sectors, whether it's homelessness or hunger or medical research or Jewish issues or STEM? How do you go about doing that as a philanthropist? So I decided at the very uh, beginning that, that we should put our categories, and I'm a very methodical person, so, so even before I knew what the standards were, I thought, you know, I really should think of different buckets. And so uh, we still kind of work in that way. So we, the most important things to us are also that we started off with uh, issues that were important to us personally, that, that you know, we had some sort of connection to. My mother has Parkinson's, so I'm more likely to donate to the Parkinson's Association. My husband has Crohn's, will donate to Crohn's and Colitis Foundation or other people doing things, but he's concerned that our children don't have Crohn's. So then we'll look at people who are working with the genetic piece of that. Um, so it usually comes from somewhere like that, but in order to kind of have a balanced portfolio of giving, um, we also wanted to add something that was local, that dealt with our local community in Los Angeles. I'm, I've always lived here. And so we wanted, wanted to do something there. And in the book, we tell a story about uh, working with Big Sunday on a, on a food-related, uh, hunger-related uh, program that still exists today that uh, was wonderful. Uh, we wanted to do something in uh, the Global South. And so we chose one organization that we would work with who worked there. Uh, wanted to do something in uh, Israel, which we, we, as you mentioned, I work with New Israel Funds, and which is a fund that then sends money onto hundreds of other organizations. So they're almost the gatekeeper for helping us to figure out where the best places that the money should go, and, and they do that. Uh, wanted to do something dealing with children's issues because, as, again, as you said earlier, we have five children. So wanted to do something there. And um, trying to think if there's something else. Those were the main issues. I might be forgetting one thing, but, but those were important to us. So we thought, you know what, let's put something in each of those buckets that feels good first. And let's find, I mean, I say feels good, also best of class, people we trust, where we, you know, really under, where they're, they're open to us. They'll tell us the good, bad, and ugly of their organization. We know where the money's going, all of that kind of thing. Let's do that first. And then anything else is sort of, you know, if, if, if there's some of our annual philanthropic budget left over and there's something that's opportunistic that catches our eye, then that's interesting too. Uh, and, and by the way, I don't, we don't only give when somebody pitches us. Sometimes we actually just find out about an organization that is, um, you know, it's interesting. We, we have two pit bulls at home and uh, that are rescues. And so my kids had some extra money at the end of last year in their donor advisement account. They each have their own donor advised fund. And I said, you know, you don't want it to sit there. Let's figure out a place you want it to go. So we weren't getting pitched on anybody. The pet shop, well, we work with the pet shop, or the pet shop where we get the food didn't send us something and say, oh, look, you own a pit bull. We should send you stuff about pit bull organizations. That didn't happen. So we actually did our own research. And I did it with my kid who's now 14 to find out what's a good pit bull organization that we want to give to. And we went through about a dozen of them online. It would, and I said, would you like it to be local? Would you like it to do this? Would you like it to do that? And then we just sent the money. And just, just for other... For other donors out there, it's really fun when you do it when you're not pitched. <laughs> yes, I can understand that. Um, 
it's a good segue. Uh, you, we talk about um, the pet peeves of donor advised funds. Uh, I've got a donor advised fund. You've got donor advised funds. Um, how do we get people to think about using the money in their donor advised funds rather than letting it just sit there? Right. So I think that that's that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book because my uh, right now there's about 100 and the new number is 142 billion dollars in donor advised funds. It's growing. I think at about between 10 and 15, 16 percent a year, uh, which is crazy. Uh, and and there's money that's sitting there. I don't believe that most people who have those funds are letting the money sit there because they don't want to give to nonprofits. But I do think it's because they might have had an interaction with somebody from a nonprofit that was so off-putting that they just said, you know what, I'm going to live my life. I'll think about this some other day. Maybe I'll run into somebody who's a fundraiser who treats me like a human. And I, um, I, I really do believe that. So I'm hoping that just by the fact of using the book and using the work that I'm doing, and I'm helping lots of organizations to to approach donors in a different way uh, that is more uh, um, trying to create a, a relationship of trust that people with those donor advised funds will say, yeah, you know what, this does sound like something I can do and I wanna do and, and, and let's get going. <clears throat> um, but the other part of it, which I'm, I'm glad you mentioned is there's a woman named Jennifer Risher uh, who has a new book called, uh, it's up here, We Need to Talk. And, uh, and, and she had a similar experience uh, to mine in that, uh, in that she found herself wealthy and a philanthropist kind of, um, it was almost overnight, and, and, and <clears throat> learned how to kind of live with that, et cetera. And she and her husband have created a program called Half My Daff. And Half My Daff is, and you can look, look it up, and uh, hashtag Half My Daff. And uh, the idea of it is to get this money out of the donor advice funds, especially during COVID. So they created this program. Um, I think it was maybe a little bit before COVID. I, I think this is the second year and uh, possibly, possibly the third year, but I think it's the second year. And their idea is that they say to people of donor advised funds, uh, why don't you give away half of your donor advised fund between this month and this month? And the dates are some date in February to some date in September. And this, that is their window. So whatever's in your donor advice fund, February, whatever, you take that amount and you're going to get, you pledge that you're going to give away half of that by the September date. And, but, but that's really nice to say, but they realize that just saying that isn't really going to get people moving so much. So they're incentivizing people with something, at least $3 million that they've raised, uh, including a million they put in themselves. Uh, to say to people, you know what, if you if you put this money, you start to give this money away, we're going to give you matching gifts for the money that you're sending. So let's say I send uh, $10,000 to make a wish. Uh, they uh, and, and it's not everybody, because, of course, if the program gets really big, they can't give it to everybody. But I think they said the first several hundred organizations all got matching gifts last year. So wow. if I give them $10,000, then the um, it, there's a decent chance that they will be matching that $10,000 to that organization. And that's a really great incentive. So that is going on right now. And I highly recommend people check it out. That's really great. Um, I think in the, in the, in the DAF world, uh, there are some organizations doing very good work. I think the foundation in Los Angeles, Jewish Foundation in Los Angeles, and the Jewish Foundation in San Francisco, um, and the San Francisco Foundation itself and Silicon Valley Foundation all do workshops for their DAF holders to say, here's some things you might want to know about in the area of homelessness, or here's something in Israel, or here's something whatever. And I took part in one the other day, and 
They're going to try to raise $3 million for a project in Israel, and I can put some of my money towards that. And it was a great, uh, you know, Zoom call and learning about another organization that I wouldn't have known about. Uh, and it was brought to me by my, my foundation, uh, Jewish Foundation. Um, the other area I want to touch upon is, is volunteering for a moment. Um, uh, what's your thoughts about volunteering versus charitable giving and the importance of volunteer work? Well, we like to do both. Uh, and at the beginning, we told the organizations that we gave money to that one of our criteria for giving was that we also are involved with the actual work, like we're actually, you know, on the ground kind of things, and we want to know what's going on. And I have to say that the the fundraisers had a really hard time with that, and they still a lot of them do that, that because there is this idea out there that you put your different supporters in different buckets. And, and so the, there's the staff bucket, there's the major donor bucket, there's the smaller donor bucket, there's the volunteer bucket, and they're not supposed to talk to each other. And <laughs> I, I, I found that very strange. And especially with the realization over the decade or so that I've been doing this, uh, that, that you know, many organizations I know about did were really in some ways saved during uh, COVID by bequests that came in during that time. And I, I, you know, I call it surprise money, but uh, so there's surprise money that comes to most organizations at some time during the year. And when you start to really look at where that money came from, it's not mostly from people who you know. You know, yes, you could have a legacy program and yes, you you, you kind of have an idea, but those payments, uh, because I, I at these organizations, when they got them, I would say, well, who is that from? And a good part of the time they would say, we don't know. Uh, or this is somebody who was a volunteer and they hadn't given to us before, or they'd only given to us $50 at a time before, and now they're giving us $500,000. And, and that tells me uh, and, and proves to me my hunch, which was that a lot of this is, a lot of the money is really coming from volunteers. The volunteers are very, in fact, the research shows that volunteers are much more attached to organizations than donors typically are. Right. And those volunteers, and, and a lot of people live for that. That's what they want to do. But yet it, there's this sort of poo-pooing kind of thing that happens when you say, oh, I'm a donor. Well, then I guess you're not volunteering anymore. And and I had a story when I was actually at uh, uh, you know, the synagogue and there was an, there was an event uh, and I was the president and also this major donor there. And they, there were some water pitchers. It was just a big community event. And there were some water pitchers on the table that were empty. And I grabbed a couple of them and started walking to the kitchen to fill them up. And the several of the other powers that be, I would call it, uh, at, the, at the synagogue were horrified. And they said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm gonna hold these pitchers. I'm just going to get more water. And oh no, you can't do that anymore. That's not some. That's not becoming of you, and I just don't think that's okay. So, right. but we really need to look to our and when and when people go to an organization and look at their database about for a uh, uh, capital campaign or some sort of campaign they're thinking about, uh, and they're they're evaluating their database along those lines. Very often they don't evaluate the volunteer side, and yeah. that's a mistake. Yeah, uh, when I got I was on the board of the uh, SF Food Bank for seven years, but the way I got involved in it was. When my daughter was eight or 10 years old, whatever, we were going down to the food bank and sorting fruit once a month on a Sunday. And then from there, I made donations and then I went on the board. And my daughter still remembers sorting, you know, 10,000 kiwi one Saturday morning, you know, and how important it was, you know, from that standpoint. It was very good. It's wonderful. And I think that's something that, you know, when I, I used to always say, well, 
I can't give you money, but I can give you time. And a lot of times people just were like, oh, well, you'll have to talk to somebody else about that. It's really not you know, something <laughs> we want to do. And, and, and the people who had those conversations with aren't getting big checks today. That's for sure. Right. I mean, that makes sense. Um, what excites you about the work you're doing now? I mean, you've been a philanthropist now for a number of years. You've written a book. What, what gets you excited every day? The most exciting thing, and I, I have to say that writing the book is the most gratifying thing I've ever done other than have children, but uh, it's, it's, the idea is that almost every morning I wake up to somebody telling me that the book has in some way changed their life or changed their perspective. Um, and a lot of people are telling me that they felt these kinds of things. They felt there, there needed to be a change in the way philanthropy was done and fundraising was done. And, and, but they didn't feel like they could verbalize it for one reason or another. In most cases, it's because they worked in a job and they didn't feel that the other people around them were on the same page. And so they just kept quiet about it and just kept doing the same thing over and over again. So um, so it, I love it when they say we feel like we have license because I'm a donor and I've given real money. They feel that they have license now to maybe go to their superiors or go to their board or go to somebody there and say, hey, let's try this different way. This major donor says that it actually works. And, and it's not just me. In the book, there's 40 other people who are interviewed and uh, we all agree about that. So that's been uh, amazing. And then I get the opportunity to help Many, many organizations have asked for, uh, you know, an hour or a half an hour to run something by me or to have a webinar with uh, a, a group of fundraising professionals or that kind of thing. And they are so appreciative that I just love it. So it's, it's great. Very good. Um, so let me, as we get ready to wrap up the interview here, the, the, the talk, um, what have I missed? What did I forget to ask you? Or is there something I should have asked you? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I would say, I guess if you, if, if, if you, I can't say you should have because there's a whole bunch of different things, but one of my favorite things to talk about now is surveys. Um, and I think that when people say to me, how can I get to know donors, especially during COVID, but I think all the time, I've had a lot, I've had that question a lot. How can I get to know these people? Or, oh, you know, I have to do it over Zoom or I, I, I'm used to doing it over lunch. How can I get to know them? And, 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 and how do I communicate with them? You know, why are they not responding? Why is my open rate so low? And my answer is, well, ask them. Ask them how they want to be communicated with. Ask them what their deal is. Ask them who they are. Ask them a little bit about themselves. And you can do it through a very, very short survey to a very large group of people and find out, you know what? 30% of my database says they really don't want snail mail anymore. They would really like to have everything communicated through email. And 60% of the database would prefer that we text them or we email them instead of call them on the phone because they don't, they don't do that anymore. And, and you can even ask them how they like to be thanked. And uh, because people, there's a wide variety of ways people want to be thanked. And that's back to the assumption thing from earlier. Don't assume that everybody wants their name in light. Some people are really uncomfortable about that. Right. And so you need to find out which type of person is the person that you're, uh, that you're pitching. And, and just the fact of asking, I've had a few organizations do this recently, and they're getting such positive feedback. People are saying to them, we didn't know you cared. We didn't know that, that you really wanted that information. And the only caveat I can tell you about it because it's very easy to do uh, and inexpensive, like it costs almost nothing, uh, but is that you need to be ready to fulfill their request. So if they say we would like to be uh, contacted through email, take them off your snail mail list. They, they you know, honor that. Don't, don't do that. And, or don't say, hey, we assume that you want to come to this big event and be honored when I just told you in my survey that I don't. So as long as you're willing to follow through on that, it's, it's been really eye-opening for a lot of people and, and I recommend it highly. And that's a good point. Thank you for that. Um, once again, your book is called Philanthropy Revolution 
and it's available in all the normal places, uh, Amazon, etc. Uh, and I've read it at least twice now. I think it's a great, uh, a great place to start talking about philanthropy. And I guess I've always been a little ahead of the curve myself in what I do in, in work. Uh, 20 years ago, I invented the system of voluntary dues in a synagogue, which worked for about five or six years. And then when I finally moved on, they stopped it. And now it's the hottest topic in the world. So, uh, you know, things do come around sometimes. And uh, But it's been a pleasure speaking with you and learning about uh, your background and how you, you came to where you are today. It's wonderful. And thank you f- for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Keep up the good work. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.